0: Welcome
1: to the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the podcast about how games impact people. My name is Chess. This episode is the epic conclusion to our series on games and mental health. This episode, in a way, serves as a nice roundup of a lot of the things that we've talked about so far. My guest has experience in a broad spectrum of areas at the intersection between games and mental health. He's been an everyday gamer, playing games to help him get through rough times. He's been a counselor, helping gamers who may feel alienated by mental health professionals without a gaming background, and he's done research to push forward our understanding of how gamers think. This episode is brought to you by Discord. Discord is an all-in-one voice and text chat platform designed for gamers and it's free to use on your desktop, phone, or tablet. Use it to co-op with friends or to discover new communities of gamers to play with. Get started with Discord by checking out the Plus 7 Intelligence Discord server, the place to discuss how games impact people. Just go to discord.gg7. Now. On to the interview. With me on the line is Dr. Steve Kuniak. He is a mental health counselor and a professor, and he is also the president of the nonprofit Experience Points. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How about we start with a brief rundown of your education background and the kind of work that you're engaged with day to day. Sure. So um, I earned my bachelor's in psychology
0: from St. Vincent College, which is uh, in, a, in a little town called La Trobe, just outside of Pittsburgh. And um, while I was there, that's actually where I started some of my my lit review and, and what eventually led to my dissertation. Uh, I was looking at the effect of heroes in fantasy on childhood resiliency. So that was my senior thesis at that point. After that, I moved on to Duquesne University, where I got my master's in counseling, master's in counselor education, and I was marriage, couple, and family concentration there. I had started to do work in the field with families who had a child who who was at risk for being removed from the home. And that's where I actually, I took that research that I had done undergrad, and I took some of that, and I was trying to apply that to the clinical work that I was doing with some of the kids at the time we only had eight months to work on the clinical issues um Mm -hmm. with you know like like I said uh, there's the prescription for services was a child had to be at risk for being removed from the home so we were really dealing with some pretty substantial behavioral psychological needs sometimes abuse issues neglect issues and you'd only have eight months to work on that it's in a type of service called family-based counseling so I was using my experience with video games and comic books and superheroes as a way to join to to build a relationship with the clients quickly, so that we could get to work more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So that's where I started a lot of the clinical application of my work. And while I was doing that and completing my master's, I was accepted into Duquesne's doctoral program in counselor education. That's uh, that's where I began work on my dissertation then, which was on the cultural Considerations for gaming. So, looking at um, what is the the mental health, the counseling definition of uh, multiculturalism, and then trying to apply that definition to gamers, because I believe that the two are pretty well in line. Uh, I I think of gaming and, and the geek culture as culture, as opposed to just an activity for many folks. And so, Um, I found some interesting stuff out uh, while working on my dissertation. I completed that actually from a data sample that I got from PAX East uh, in Boston in 2013. took me a little over a year to complete my stats analysis on that. And um, I I found some interesting things. I feel like they were interesting about coping methods and um, was able to get some some good demographic information on gamers and uh, moved on from there. So that's when I... I had worked with some colleagues to try to create a nonprofit organization that has eventually evolved into Experience Points now, which is really just, um, I really just kind of rebranded and reestablished that uh, within the last year. The idea being that I would start to, um, as I got into academics now and a little bit out of the clinical field, I still do consulting. The idea was that Experience Points could become kind of the the face of creating some resources for families uh, to help to provide easier conversation and, and easier interactions. A lot of the work that I was seeing getting referred clients who were, from their parents' perspective, gaming addicted, was that the parents really didn't understand gaming, and the kids didn't know how to enlighten their parents. They just wanted to engage in their their activities of, of choice. And so a lot of the work I ended up doing was creating those conversations or helping those conversations along. So I sort of saw Experience points as an opportunity to to help people gain that experience, to be able to have those conversations, and to, to make family life a little bit easier.
1: So, right now, you said you're working on more research and also on experience points. Yeah, that's uh, that's been a lot of
0: what I've been doing recently. I still do consultation. Local uh, local agencies or you know folks that I've been in contact with will call me up and want to consult about cases and and things of that sort. But yeah work on experience points has been a lot of resource creation, which has been kind of slow going. So, literally, tools that I could uh, hand out to families or to practices to explain some of the gaming culture a little bit easier um, for clinicians who are working in the field who um, maybe know that there's some benefit to um, to what their clients are doing, but don't have a don't have enough firsthand knowledge to be able to facilitate those conversations. So, yeah, it's. It's literally creating the tools to be able to provide that right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned a couple of things I found that were really interesting. You talked about gaming culture or and also geek culture in general, about looking at those as culture and treating those as culture. What did you mean by that? And and what do you see there?
0: Where I got my start in exploring this as culture was related to, to my counseling work. My experience with say working in groups or working with agencies is that funding goes to wherever you can establish a need so wherever you can quantitatively establish that that there's a need and so multiculturalism is an aspect of counseling it's it's very clearly written into the American Counseling Association's code of ethics that counselors are required to practice good multiculturalism so a thought that i had was if i could identify that gamers and geeks are a culture, that then I would be able to begin to make a case for providing funding for services that would support wellness around gamers and geeks. If you if you can't tie it into into something sort of scientifically, the funding goes into different avenues. So that was where this all that was where this all started. That was kind of the brainchild of doing this was that if I can maybe make an argument for this by getting some data, I might be able to start opening funding streams. But it's uh, it's been challenging, and particularly with I think some of some of the more recent stories, or uh, even some of the more recent past of of my field, uh, gaming gets looked at as being very negative. Uh, it Gets looked at as being kind of a problem. I think, and I'm pleased to see that so many clinicians are starting to change their mind about that and are starting to explore this as as a potential opportunity. But it's it's still I think an uphill battle. So that's where the that's where the start of looking at gaming as culture began for me
1: yeah you know the series i've talked to a handful of doctors and counselors and you know it it is encouraging to me that i didn't hear about any of anybody talking about games culture or geek culture in psychology even just a few years ago you know obviously it's not my field but it's still encouraging to see that it seems like it's a movement that more people are finding important and more people are being deliberate in, in addressing and talking to the gaming community and speaking to their mental needs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it is, it's, it's slow movement, but it's been positive movement. And I think the more voices we hear on this, the better.
1: And you also talked about, you gave a, a brief overview of the research you did related to PAX And you mentioned coping mechanisms. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that?
0: Yeah, so um, I looked at three variables. It was coping strategies, resiliency, and then gamer personality traits. Um, I was trying to see if there was any link across the board for any of those factors. For me, when I was designing my dissertation, Personality made sense as a variable because if you look at a person's personality, if you can kind of quantify that in one way or another, you can understand a little bit more about their motivations for whatever. So I wanted to get a baseline understanding of what each, each participant's personality was as far as their motivation for play. And I found a really great gamer personality matrix that I used. It's called Brain Hex. So shout out to those guys. They provided me that metric for my dissertation. But then I was looking at coping strategies because I figured with the negative tone towards gaming that was in the literature, particularly at the time, like like we said, I think it's been improving. I think that we're seeing a lot more voices popping up, whether that be in the form of studies or books or podcasts for that matter, that that are speaking a little bit more positively. But at the time there wasn't a lot. And so one of the things that I was picking up on was that the message was that gamers were not good at coping. They couldn't deal with life circumstances very well, was kind of the the gist of of what I was hearing a lot of times. And so I figured then that we should get a, a measurement of coping. The metric that I found for that, the coping strategies inventory that I was using, looked at coping from, from two perspectives. So it looked at it from a very micro level where we could look at very specific individual considerations for coping. Um, and then it could also be kind of compressed to look at either problem focused coping or more solution focused oriented coping mechanisms. I was able to kind of play with the data a little bit to see if anything anything worked out. And my and, I, and so resiliency. I guess I should throw that in there too. The, the last variable, resiliency, was if you have high levels of psychological resiliency, you're not really impacted negatively by life circumstances. And if you have low levels of resiliency, you might be more negatively impacted. So based on the data that I was reading at the time, I didn't believe this to necessarily be true just from my own personal experience being a gamer. I've been playing games since I was old enough to hold a controller. But from the literature, you would presume low levels of resiliency, not very problem-oriented as far as coping, and then the personality was, again, just to kind of get a feel for things. What I ended up finding was that gamers are very problem-oriented as far as their coping skills. So that was kind of off the charts as far as my data went, which makes sense to me because, I mean, what is gaming except solving problems in a, in a lot of ways? So a person who is, you can't presume chicken or the egg here, so it's either very problem-oriented people are drawn to gaming or gaming helps people to become more problem-focused. I don't know. I can make some subjective guesses, but The Matrix wouldn't wouldn't exactly share that with me. So gamers were very problem-focused, so that means that they are good at, at solving solving problems, they do have some very strong coping mechanisms, but that that fell off sharply with excessive levels of play. So one of the demographic features that I was looking at was how much time people were gaming as well in in sort of a Likert scale. And at the very extreme level of play, the coping fell off, which is kind of consistent with other data as well that says if you're spending so much time in virtual worlds, then you're not really engaging real life as well. So it makes sense. But while you're well, you're playing kind of an average or a moderate level, you know, even high average, coping mechanisms seem to be really in line with that problem-focused coping. But additionally, what was really cool was resiliency levels were were pretty high too. So it implies that gamers are actually pretty good at dealing with life circumstances. Uh, those were some unexpected findings, but I think some really, really positive findings. I expected things to align differently and the variables just didn't didn't go that route. But what I did find, I thought was, was really encouraging and has led me to try to go and seek out more data to see if I can sort of further that study and, and see what else pops up.
1: When you say problem-focused, what does that mean in terms of coping? Like what kind of behaviors does that reflect in in terms of coping strategies? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So you can either be a person who
0: engages in problem-solving or retreats from problem-solving. And so because it's problem-focused coping that was so high, it's implying that gamers are more likely to seek solutions to their problems, actually engage the problems as opposed to retreat, which again is kind of surprising because so often I think the, the negative tone for gamers is we're people who retreat into fantasy, try to escape from the real world into virtual spaces. And so instead, what the data is showing is that if there is a problem to solve, we're more likely to go towards it than away from it. Now, that's not saying necessarily that we we use those skills really well or that that that's something that we would engage in without someone sort of pointing it out to us or or pointing us in the direction of of maybe using those talents, which is that's, that's where kind of my clinical work picked up was I believe that that's something that we as mental health professionals ought to be aware of is our clients are actually, if they're gamers, inclined to be problem focused. And so maybe we just need to encourage them in that direction or help point them in that direction. Use the skills that they're that they're learning in, in virtual worlds, in game worlds. I guess it doesn't have to be virtual, but use use what they're learning to help themselves. Because I see that with clients in general. So often my work as a counselor is more about helping people to start to find their own solutions that, that were there the whole time, that they they have complete control over but because they're not they're in the middle of it they're in the thick of it they're not as aware of what's going on around them the whole forest for the trees scenario that's that's my role is to kind of point out some stuff that's in front of them that they maybe didn't consider and and gaming is one of those one of those things that if I know I have a gamer and I know they're kind of problem oriented I might as a counselor be more likely then to point them in the direction of of solving their problems
1: yeah that's really cool i'd i'm definitely I tell people all the time that if you're a gamer and you have something you want to accomplish in your life or you have problems you're dealing with that you can look to your game to look to your gaming history to get inspiration and to get a model for how you can how you can solve problems how you can accomplish things in the real world. I think that's really cool that there seems to be some some pattern like you said it's not we don't know causality, but I think it does line up with my experience with myself as a gamer, with other gamers. There's many times that I met someone, and I see that they are they have certain personality traits, and they might be someone that I sense is problem focused. And sometimes I I've predicted, hey, that person sounds like a gamer, and lo and behold, I find out later, of course, they're a gamer because games bring out. Certain aspects in people. Yep,
0: I would agree with that. Yeah,
1: it's always fun for me when I go into, um,
0: you know, a public space, a mall, uh, you know, a park, something like that, and I'm wearing a gaming shirt, like like I am today. I, when I'm when I'm not in the office, when I'm not on campus, I, I tend to dress as a gamer, and so when I go into one of those spaces and someone recognizes what I'm wearing and and comes up to uh, to point it out to me or or to chat with me. It's always kind of, you know, you have that kind of aha moment. And so I think I've, I've found like, so I go out of my way to, to show I'm a gamer, but I think it's interesting when people don't and you do exactly what you had said and you start talking and you realize this person sounds like me or, or you know, this, this thing about them stands out and it's familiar to me. And, and then you recognize that you do have that familiarity. I think that's the community that is so central to gamers that I don't think we're recognized for, but, but is so
1: common. And you also talked about how I think everyone was aware of the stigma of gamers not being able to cope and not being able to deal with the real world. But you mentioned that there was actual literature in the psychology world that that exemplified that. I wasn't I guess I always thought it was just a stigma, just something in the culture. But it seems like that there was academics who who saw it that way and wrote about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... There was a pretty noticeable tone in the literature, and I, I should preface so like there there weren't a lot of studies in general, but the studies that were present typically had a tone of negativity, and it was almost always that that sort of direction of gamer gamer equals violence. So people who engage in uh, gaming behaviors are at risk for being more violent. It didn't necessarily correlate with actual recorded violent incidents, um, but the presumption was. That a person would be more would be more violent, and so there were even some what are called meta studies that were done, so studies of studies, where people would take a sampling of the existing literature and then try to find a a tone or, or or a thread that connected those studies, and that was typically what you would find is that yes, all of these studies agree that gaming is bad. Um, what I was what I was heartened to see was as time went on, there have been more academics out there who are saying well, but is it so bad because there's so many people who are actively engaging in gaming behaviors? Are we, are we really giving this a fair look? And so the direction has shifted and there's actually some, some journals out there now that are focused on, on looking at gaming and health and gaming and, uh, uh gaming and culture, for example, is actually a journal, an academic journal that I subscribe to. Um, and so you're seeing maybe, maybe not a, what would be considered a lot of studies or a ton of studies, but I think that there is a noticeable trend where we're seeing quantity-wise more studies that are coming out that are either neutral or positive, which I think is what you want to see. I think you want to see the expectation isn't that the research will shift to being from gaming was bad to gaming is good, but at least let's learn about more about this culture. Let's talk about gamers and let's be open about what's out there. And it doesn't have to have a tone to it. Just let's put more more information out there and you know that journal puts out four to five articles every other month so i think that's i think that's really positive to see
1: you had mentioned to me that games have helped you and in, in your life in kind of some things that we were talking about before like coping strategies as something to help you cope can you talk about some of those experiences yeah sure um it, it kind of
0: started for me when I was really young. I, 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 like I said earlier, I've been playing video games since I was old enough to hold a controller. Like three or four years old, I can remember starting to fool around with, with games. Um, I still remember very vividly the, the day my dad came home with our Nintendo, our original Nintendo and a copy of Zelda. And that was that was kind of where it kicked off for me. I was playing my uncle and my dad's Ataris and you know Sega Master System and all that sort of stuff before that. But I can remember being in grade school. And I, I remember a time when I was um, I was sick. I had the flu, something, you know, something just going around, some sort of kid illness. And uh, I was home from school. My parents let me play um, because they they knew I was sick. If, if there was a question of legitimate sick, I wasn't you know, then I wasn't allowed to to play video games. But if I was legitimately sick, you know, they would they would be okay with that. So uh, I was playing Super Mario Brothers two, and I can remember very vividly starting that early on in the day. And time had passed, but I wasn't paying attention to it. And so it was later in the day. My dad came home from work, and I was commenting to him that I noticed I felt better. And I remembered saying that I didn't, you know, that maybe the game had some ability to make me feel better. And my my dad had said. Um, he didn't think it was that. He thought it was just that the game distracted me while my body took care of itself and while I, while I healed. And so that, that stuck with me, even that young, it's, it kind of stuck with me. I didn't really have any other, I, I love games. I played them all through grade school and, you know, high school, uh, but I didn't have any other noteworthy experience with it until uh, what we had talked about a little bit uh, prior to this, this interview I was in the transition period between my college career and my master's program. And I, I i guess I just actually completed my first semester in my master's program. I was in a really serious car accident. So a guy crossed the lane of traffic, hit me head on, um, crushed my car all the way up to the windshield. And um, I actually ended up with a crushed femur. Uh, my, right, my right leg was shattered. So um, uh, I knew that that was, I mean you know, I, I knew that that was going to be uh, kind of a, a life altering circumstance. I don't think I knew exactly how much that was going to change my life at that time. But, you know, in, in the weeks that followed, I was, I was kind of recovering from that. And a crushed femur is, is pretty bad, um, injury wise. And so thankfully I was, uh, you know, I spent most of my life living in the Pittsburgh area. So the, the, uh, UPMC, the Pittsburgh hospital system is pretty good. Uh, they, they Uh, were able to reconstruct my leg. I, I'm all titanium uh, in there, but uh, but they were able to reconstruct it, and so it was kind of like the prognosis was good, but it was going to be about six months before I was going to be walking again, and you know, so it was going to be a painful learning how to walk uh, process, and um, so I, I was stuck. Here I was in my early 20s. I had this track going on. I was going to get my master's and get my license, and you know, I thought I knew exactly where my career was going, and literally. It was like getting thrown into a brick wall. I wasn't able to do anything. And so here I am now staying at my grandmother's house because it was all one level and I I didn't have to do any stairs and everything is kind of on hold. So, I mean, I was, I was blessed. I was grateful to have a family that could take care of me, but I was kind of stuck. So you had the mix of the actual physical pain of the injury, which was pretty significant and the psychological pain of like, you know, here I, again, in my twenties, I'm completely immobile. And it could have been worse, you know. I don't want to make it out to be that oh, poor me, like I was in this terror. Like I was very lucky to have come out as as you know as as well as I did from that. But it was still it was still a blow. And so, um, there I was uh, in in a lift chair, uh, unable to move, and all I really had was my Xbox. That was the year that the Xbox 360 came out, and my uh, my uncles sat up. A, a gaming station for me in my grandma's living room, and that's all I had was my comic books and um, and my Xbox. And so I played Halo Two over and over again because at that point the 360 didn't have a ton of games out. It was that Morrowind, or I guess Oblivion, and uh, for time wise, and um, and that's what I used to try to get through that because I I didn't the pain medicine that they gave me kind of cut. The pain of, of the shattered leg, but it, it really didn't take away the pain. And certainly if I had to get up and move around, like to use the bathroom or to, you know, to get to to the dinner table or whatever the case may be, that would really aggravate it. There, there wasn't a lot I could do about that. And I didn't want to keep taking pain medicine. Like I, I've never had an issue with um, with addiction issues, but I mean, I was in psychology classes. I'd learned about this sort of stuff. I just wanted to be real careful with it because I knew that that's kind of a pitfall. That's one of those innocent ways that people can trip down that that path to addiction is using something prescribed but needing more and more of it it can start the process. So I was trying to not take any more. So what I would do is using that lesson from way back when I was playing Super Mario Brothers 2, if I could get myself reasonably comfortable, I would just get lost in the games for a while. You can't have Two stimuli going on at the same time, so I would keep my mind occupied on on master chief on Halo and I wasn't thinking about my shattered leg and so that that really helped me to get through without without relying on pain medicine to get through that six months so I credit gaming with that for sure
1: yeah that's that's incredible and that reminds me of well it reminds me of several stories back in the episode when I talked with Travis Erickson of Child's Play, he talked about how there's research that when kids in hospitals can play games, many times they can actually reduce the amount of pain medication that they need to have the same overall level of comfort. That's just incredible to me. And for me, I remember a time in particular that was very obvious to me that I remember I was playing Dota 2 this one time when I wasn't feeling that great and literally as the that match ended and the screen popped up and you know I was no longer in control anymore it was a very difficult match the instant that that happened I I felt like this huge headache just instantly come back to life that yeah. while I was playing the game I couldn't feel it and yeah. then and then as soon as it was, as it was done I felt it and um yeah that's An interesting aspect of games, something that I like to talk about games is, you know, we had talked about addiction and escapism. This is the flip side where those can be strengths of games that they can pull you out and they can, they can detach you from things that you probably don't want to spend all of your time in Mm -hmm. things that are not good for you. So yeah, that's a really, really interesting, interesting property of games. Uh, I like to, get people to think about the flip perspective. And, and I think a lot of people have similar stories of, of games, helping people through tough times. Yeah, absolutely. There's i uh, I'm always, I like to share that story when I
0: get a chance, because there are other instances, there are other stories out there where people have used, used these things for very positive, whether they knew it or not, you know, but, uh, but like you said, the, I didn't, you don't really notice until it's not there anymore or, you know, until the opposite is occurring. So I like, to, I like to hear when people kind of land on that and, and have that kind of aha moment of that was really helpful. Or, this really did work out for me. Kind of like what we were talking about with coping mechanisms before, they're only really effective if you know what they are. Like how often is it that you go to use something to help yourself feel better or get through a tough time and you do it without thinking of it? That's, that's kind of a natural experience that we run across. But then if you know it's helpful to you when you're in a difficult circumstance, you can go to it. Like, if you know it's there, if you know it has those properties. So helping people to find coping mechanisms, I think, is a really important part of the counseling process. It's, it's simple. It's something I think we look, we look past a little bit too easily. We want to try to you know, get, into the, get into the deeper stuff, but helping people navigate like that can be so critically important. So you can draw on it then.
1: Now a word about Discord, sponsor of this series on games and mental health. Discord is the greatest way for gamers to connect online. Hang out in chat rooms to discuss gaming exploits, then jump into voice chat to play a co-op match. All of this for free on your desktop or mobile device. Discord is perfect for playing games that either don't have built in voice chat or just don't have the most well thought out voice chat, and let's face it, that's most games. I had a blast this week playing Mario Kart 8 online with some new friends. It was so much more fun when I could hear the anguish that a well-timed green shell delivers. After that experience, I made some simple changes to the Plus 7 Intelligence server to make it even easier to find people to play with. So it's not just the best place on the internet to discuss games, but it's a great place to find new teammates and rivals. To join the server just for Plus 7 Intelligence listeners, and to get started with Discord, go to discord.gg plus7. That's Discord. Dot gg slash plus numeral seven or just click that link in the show notes. Plus 7 intelligence is supported by Castbox, the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on iOS and Android. Now I have tried many, many different podcast apps. Sometimes I'll try three different apps and I can't even tell the difference between them. So how is Castbox taking the podcast app market by storm? Here's just one of the features that sets them apart. It features in audio search. You can actually type in something to look for, say gamification, and it will actually search through not just the titles and show notes of episodes, but actually in the words that are spoken in the podcasts. It's a fantastic way to engage with podcasts that was never available before. Download CastBox and try it for yourself today. You can find it on the Google Play Store, the Apple App Store, or at castbox.fm. That's castbox.fm. You also mentioned to me before that video games have helped you with anxiety. Was that related to the car accident, or or was there more to that? Um,
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, there was certainly anxiety related to the car accident, but now gaming, um, one of the things that I think led me to a, a career in mental health was the realization that I... First off, I, I feel like I was good with, with talking to people, with helping people. That was kind of one of those early things in high school that cued me into maybe this is a, a direction I want to go. Originally, I was going to be studying sharks. I, I always like to tell people I was going to be a marine biologist. Uh, I was inspired by shark week since I was really little. But uh, I, I didn't quite know where I wanted to head with that. When I was you know getting into high school, I wasn't sure that I wanted to move to an island somewhere and and just make that i mean there are benefits to that but i didn't know that that's what i wanted to make my career and i started to notice that folks would come and talk to me about what was going on in their life and it just kind of struck me one day maybe this is a direction to head but additionally kind of quietly for myself i knew that i struggled with anxiety i knew that i struggled in social situations particularly i never had a reason to i you know i i feel like i can be pretty social but um but social anxiety was definitely an issue for me and certainly um, sort of a general sense of anxiety has, has always been something that's that I've struggled with and that kind of runs in my family. And so I would um, I would know – like you can't always game, right? Like there's, there's some points in life where you have to put down the controller regardless of whether or not you want to. Um, but what I would do for myself is when I was in these sort of high-stress situations, I would notice kind of a – Sort of the wave experience. So, like, the best example I can give is when I was in finals week in college or something like that. My anxiety would be really high, but I've always had the ability to kind of forcibly suppress that, get the work done. But then I would experience the anxiety symptoms afterwards, almost like a wave flowing. So, like, I would, I would ride the wave, get through what I needed to, and then when I would go home the week following finals week, either on the Christmas break or the summer break, I would have migraines. I would, um, I would sort of get panicky. I would have this sort of buzzing that was constantly going on for me. And so because I knew that games were something that could occupy my mind and would keep me calm and were just generally pleasurable to me, the week following, I started to develop this routine of gaming a lot more or trying to build more time into game. Um, and I and that's something that I, I do coach people on too is, you know, you can't always have it. you You have to do other things. But when you can, being intentional about how you – how you put that in to soothe yourself is important, and so that's that's one of the things I do. I notice that when I'm getting more agitated, when I when I'm having more panic attacks or things of that, because that's something that I've I've struggled with that I've had to try to learn how to manage. Maybe I do need to do some more some more coping. Maybe I do need to be a little bit more kind to myself and do some of the stuff that helps me to relax. And so I, I will kind of use that that experience around anxiety to um, to gauge when I'm not doing enough self-maintenance and and gaming is one of those there are other things too i love to read i love to watch movies i'm a comic book guy spider-man's my my favorite and i've always kind of equated my anxiety to his spider sense like kind of warns me when things are going on but as is in the comics it kind of goes haywire sometimes and you know it's not working properly so so i i find those things to do And, and gaming is really it's easy for me like i can't always find Enough time to sit down and read a good book. I wish I could. You know, I, I I try to. I try to be intentional about that. But I can log in on my phone or jump in on the Xbox for a few minutes and, and really get some quality time, and it, it helps to recenter me a little bit. So that's that's something I'm I'm still constantly trying to learn and still constantly trying to fine tune. But it's, it's definitely been positive for me.
1: Yeah, that's something that has come up a lot in this series is the idea of using games intentionally as something to to help when you are depressed or are anxious or just general self-care and being deliberate about it instead of crossing the line like we mentioned before where now you're playing too much or even if the hours aren't that much if you're doing it to the exclusion of other things in your life that could that you're responsible for, that could, that would be better for you, that are necessary for you. So that's something that I've definitely been really interested in because it's come up so much is trying to find, find details and strategies to to keep games as a positive thing in your life for your mental health. Yeah,
0: absolutely. One of the, one of the things that I try to keep in mind too is because it's, it's a balancing act, right? Like everything in our lives is, is trying to balance one way or the other and, and we can overindulge sometimes or we're, underindulging and we're suffering or, you know, like I had said, when I'm when I'm not gaming, I tend to be more agitated, I tend to be more, more stressed out. Learning how to listen to yourself and and make conscious choices about those things is really important. And one of my favorite things that I've landed on is actually in in my work with folks who were working in recovery, who were, you know, struggling with addiction, who were in many cases um, having some really amazing stories about how they'd overcome really, really significant life life stressors. Um, one of the expressions that comes up in the addiction literature is um, to do the next right thing. So one of the slogans like within, at least my colleagues who were in Narcotics Anonymous would say, you know, do the next right thing to, to another to another colleague who was struggling. I really love that because there, how often is it though that we make a wrong step? Maybe we game too much this time and then we get down on ourselves and we we just sort of, sit within that cycle of problematic gaming or, or, you know, but if we're a little bit kind to ourselves and we realize, you know what, I fell off the wagon, I did this a little bit too much, or, um, you know what, I wasn't doing it enough. We'll do the next right thing. You know, try to try to correct it just because you made a mistake, just because maybe this time it didn't go the way that you wanted it to. doesn't mean that you can't write your wrong and, and fix it. We're constant works in progress. Right. So, um, I think that I think that being a little bit kind to ourselves and, and understanding everything in moderation, everything in balance, is just is is just. It's a really good lesson. It's a really hard lesson, but it's a really important
1: lesson. At the top of the show, you mentioned a little bit about when you were working with clients and, and introducing games into uh, counseling. Can you talk about uh, some of your strategies there?
0: Yeah, um, I think the simplest strategy I've used is just to. Uh, to have gaming stuff in my office. So like if you were to come into right now, my office is my, my office on campus, my, my office at the college I'm working at. But um, even there I have my Minecraft figures out, you know, I have a, I have a little Steve and I have a creeper uh, above my desk. And um, like I said, I've always been a huge halo buff. So I've got some master chief stuff sitting around on my desk and, and so forth. So the goal there was, it was intentional. That was purposeful. Because when you come into a, cl- a counselor's office, clients are typically very anxious. They're unsure. They don't want to be judged. So even for my clients who weren't necessarily gamers or geeks, the hope was that they came in and they saw that I was able to be a little bit myself and that that would reduce some of their their stress with coming into a counselor's office. For those clients that I was working with who were gamers or whose family was bringing them in because they thought that they were gaming addicted uh, or problem gamers, it let them know that I spoke their language, that I wasn't just another clinician who who was going to try to pretend to understand what they were talking about or who was going to tell them that they were wrong for enjoying it. You know, I knew enough about this stuff because I I do play um, to be able to have those conversations. And therapeutically, counseling is a relationship. Like that's something that we know that uh, the, the literature would support that more than the style of counseling I use or the particular interventions I use, my ability to form a relationship with a client where they believe that I care about them and I believe they believe that I can help them will help make change when any other variable is, is not going to play as much of a part. So that's the first thing I do is I, I try to be open about that and, and speak the language and, and let, let people you know talk about that stuff. Uh secondarily I use metaphor with gaming. So I'll use that with any sort of storytelling like again I, I love Spider-Man, I've used that in my sessions. I love Lord of the Rings, I've used that in my sessions or Star Wars. Um same with gaming. Gaming has great stories and so the use of gaming icons and and stories for narrative therapy interventions or or for metaphor work has been fantastic and works really well with clients. More to the point, though, of I think what you're getting at is when I've actually brought the games into, into sessions and, uh, and utilized those tools has, has been really productive. So one of the go-to play therapy interventions is what's called sandbox therapy. I've used Minecraft for that because Minecraft is a virtual sandbox, and so the ability to play around in that space has been useful. But before Minecraft came out, I was actually using Halo Reach. I would use Forge World in Halo as a way to get folks manipulating things in in the Forge space. Not every client did that work with as well because, you know, clients had to be at least a little bit familiar with the controllers or play with the controllers a little bit. But so many of my clients were already familiar with it that even if they didn't play Halo, they, they'd kind of lend themselves over to that. And so the manipulation of objects and, and uh, the, the use of play as therapy is a lot of tons of literature on how beneficial that can be but what i would find is at minimum my clients would build with me and then as they were building uh, or digging or whatever the case may be they would be more comfortable opening up so the act of building is is therapeutic the sandbox play is therapeutic on its own but my clients who would be resistant to talk to me otherwise and i can think of one client in particular who was struggling on the autism spectrum he couldn't focus. He didn't want to focus with, with me at all in therapy. But when we were in Forge World, he was much more able to kind of concentrate on what he was doing in the game, and then be able to talk to me about what was going on in the in the real world for him. And so those have been some successful interventions. Uh, and I've used other games in similar sorts of ways, <clears throat> as far as sort of a distractor task to make the client more comfortable. I've used board games in therapy too. So it's not even just the Xbox, but uh, there are therapeutic games. But what I've found with therapy games is that they can be beneficial, but a lot of times they're almost kind of stilted. So they're made with the idea that they're going to be therapeutic. And so in that way, then they're not entertaining. And so the client is less likely to be willing to play it. So instead, I would try to bring some of the stuff that I, I have at home in that is entertaining and then try to adapt that for, for counseling. We would create character sheets, crib sheets from like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that, which became kind of the treatment plan then for my clients. So, yeah, so we would, we would use that as a way to structure what it is that they liked about themselves and what it was that they wanted to change about themselves. And we would tell stories based on that. So that was, that was another one of the games that I would bring in is just some of the, some of the pieces from my, my uh, intro to B&B books. What I've been encouraged with is what I do a lot of now um, since I've been doing the full-time teaching is um, doing lecturing and, and talking to folks about, about this idea, about this phenomenon. And just like you described, I had a a counselor come up to me after one of my trainings and ask a couple questions about one of their clients and that they were struggling, making a connection with their clients. And so they went back and started talking to them about this is a school counselor, started talking to some of the kids at the school about the games that they were playing. And, and uh, they found that the students were actually much more likely than to make connections with them. So I, I absolutely. I think that what you're describing is pretty, pretty well in line with that. And, and it's so encouraging to hear that, there are open-minded people who are willing to try to learn a little bit more about something as a means of trying to help their clients out uh, to make that connection.
1: So you mentioned experience points a little bit. Is there anything else more you want to flesh out about that or, or how people can learn about that or, or get involved in, in seeing what you're doing?
0: Right now, what's on the webpage is interviews that I've done. Um, lectures that I've given, um, I'm trying to kind of curate all of those resources that I've already put together. Those are already all up on the page. Links to YouTube videos or things like that that I that I have available. I've got one more to post up actually as we speak. The goal will be to try to post some of that, that stuff up there. And, and again, for families, I, I think the focus is really because so much of my work has been on family therapy. That's where some of these resources, like literally, like step by step, how to set parental controls on on a console uh, for some families. Thinking about uh, doing some other resources in line with that, that that help parents to understand a little bit more about the technology because I think what I've learned from working with families is families are, parents are unlikely to, we are less likely to try to work with something that we feel completely unfamiliar with. So parents are less likely to try to engage in this in this stuff with their kids because it's so unfamiliar to them, it's uncomfortable. And so I feel like if I can put some of that information out there for folks that they're at least not walking into the darkness entirely, they'd be more likely to have some of these conversations or try some things. And likewise, long-term looking at this, then it becomes also, so what can the gamer do uh, a little bit more effectively? So, you know, that's kind of the, the two-pronged approach or the long-term approach for where i see this going but right now it's it's a lot of curated materials of the work i've already done yeah so it's at x p p t s o r g experience points org uh, is our twitter and the webpage is just experience all one word, dot org. that's that's kind of the, the ways to get a hold of me
1: any other social media or links that you'd like to share and talk about i'm active on the the geek therapy. Facebook accounts.
0: Um, I know you're familiar with that, so I'm I'm there and I'm I'm active there, and I think that they have a lot of great uh, resources available to folks. My own social media is out there. Certainly, I'm on Twitter. So if you, you know, if you want to have a one-to-one interaction with me, I'm at Steve Agorn, um, which is um, my truly geeky name. It's a mix of my first name and Aragorn. Um, in college, you were talking about your friends who were all into Knights of the Old Republic. So when I was in college. Lord of the Rings was coming out, and so all of my friends, um, we uh, unashamedly combined our names with all of the characters from the Fellowship of the Rings. So each of my friends has our own version of that. So I'm Steve Agorn. I have a friend who is Grigolus. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, at Steve Agorn. And uh, also, I mean, that's that's typically the name that I use in forums, uh, you know, across the board. Uh, if you see me online or if you see me active, always glad to try to give a shout out. Sometimes on Xbox, I stay kind of, uh, on the, on the DL because that is my therapy too. So, um, folks are, are welcome to to follow me as as they like, but sometimes I'm trying to do my own, do my own work.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your experience and, and talking about your, your, um, research and your own life experiences and your work with clients. Uh, I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Lots of thanks to Steve, who is very open about the struggles in his life and the roles that games play in it. Someone recently said this to me about the show. Games have helped me through some hard times, and it's wonderful to know I'm not alone. So I know that Steve's honesty about such things makes a difference, especially because he uses it as a motivation and as a guide for what he does in his work. That's it for this week's Intelligence Boost. The seven-part series on games and mental health has come to a close, but we are far from done talking about it as a topic. There's so much that I came across that I couldn't fit in, but would love to talk about further. And if you haven't checked out season one, we actually talked about mental health and games quite a bit. Looking back, episodes three, four, seven, ten, fourteen, nineteen, 10, 14, 19, and 20, they all have to do with games and mental health. So this series is only about half of the Plus 7 Intelligence episodes on the topic. So now that we've concluded this series, what's next? Next up is a series looking at how games are impacting our society and making positive change on a big scale. The topic is games and social change. That series starts September 3rd but the previous episode on Mapmaker, the gerrymandering game, was an early entry on that, so there are six more episodes in that series to come. And that's a little while away, so make sure you are subscribed, because you might think you'll remember to check back in, but I promise you, you'll forget, and then you'll be missing out. In the interim, hop onto the Plus 7 Intelligence Discord. That's where you'll hear first about anything awesome Plus 7 related, and I would love to hear from listeners what they thought about the mental health series as a whole, and what you would like to hear in the upcoming series on social change. And after that, the series on games and education. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon.
0: Odd glomer, a sonic universe.
1: Music for this episode provided by the ever-elusive and mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder.